You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Your You. In 30 years. Whoa. Some advice. Open a Laurel Road checking account when you refinance your student loans. You could get a rate as low as 1.37% variable APR, plus a cash bonus. I can do that. Also, don't date Parker. Ew, the defense attorney? Trust me. Save yourself with Laurel Road. Visit laurelroad.com slash save yourself for more information. Rates depend on your credit profile and include discounts. Terms and conditions apply. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank, member FDIC. Episode 157, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's guest is Dr. Basavana Gudra. He's faculty at Penn Medicine in Philadelphia, and we're going to talk about board certification uh, with after residency. So this is something that is definitely more in the weeds for people who are technically involved, like people who are physicians, because we've all done residency and we have to do board certification. But for those of you who aren't, you might ask yourself, well, I don't know, is this very interesting? And I think you'll find it. Um, what the certification process is, is really a reflection broadly in most professions of the uh, testing industrial complex. And you'll find that what problems you may have in your profession, where like, you know, you're, let's say you're an uh, electrical engineer or maybe an attorney, you have to pass some sort of test, a bar exam for attorneys, there are other certification tests people have to pass. And there's oftentimes now a push to do this more and more often, rather as opposed to doing just one time, declaring yourself an expert, passing the you know this training program, and then you're sort of off in the world. Now you're expected to continually do re-education or new education, which is absolutely something that is required because unless your profession is static, meaning there's no change, you need to continue educating yourself. The problem, of course, comes in the fact that it's very broad in these re-education programs, right? And so what happens is, you know, I might be uh, an anesthesiologist specifically, and I do general anesthesia. Well, I don't really need to know 
the ins and outs of cardiac anesthesia or high-risk pediatrics because I just don't do it. It just never comes across my, my desk. It, I never do those cases. And so I'm forced now to relearn things, uh, to find new techniques and things that are going to be of no benefit to my patients. And you might say, well, that's just, you know, goes with the course, that's part of the course, it just kind of goes along with being a doctor, you have to know these things. But think about what the opportunity costs. So if I'm spending time learning about something that I will never do, I'm unable to spend time doing something that matters to me, like my family, or perhaps learning something that I'm doing, like nerve blocks or other things that are going on in the anesthesia field. And so there is a cost to this, even though there might be a technical cost, like, you know, dollars, there's absolutely a cost to training and learning things that are of no benefit to you. Now, when we do our initial training process in anesthesia, you, of course, don't know what you're going to do for sure when, you, when you're going to get done with training. So you kind of do learn everything. You see all sorts of things. You get exposed to everything. And that is part of the process, I guess, of training uh, that, you know, you get to see some cardiac anesthesia. You get to see some pediatrics and some neuro. And you say, oh, boy, I don't want to do that or I do want to do that. I want to do spend more time focusing on obstetrics or whatever. And so there is a value to that. And, you know, that's the balance that I guess when you have any sort of training program. But once you're done and you have a career somewhere, you've sort of decided your path. And I wouldn't expect someone who is a specialist and fixes, let's say, semis to be forced to continually learn how to fix motorcycles. It wouldn't make any sense if that's something they never do. But in many ways, that's what we're expected to do in medicine a lot. Maybe even more than other professions. I can't speak for them. But I think, you know, if you're not in medicine... It's interesting to see how these things just keep getting ratcheted up and there's no recourse and there's no way for us to complain. I mean, well, you can complain, but there's no way to actually change the process, which is very interesting because this organization that does our credentialing is private, but it's not private, right? So it, um, <laughs> it sort of has regulatory hold over us, but it has no feedback mechanism where we can actually lodge complaints or actually create any reform if we think there's something that's gone off the rails and it's no longer doing what we think it should be doing. So Dr. Gudra did a study that basically found that one of the new components that are added for anesthesia, which they are adding these new components all the time for initial certification, is of no value. It's uh, phony. It, it's not something that the residents think is helpful. Residency directors don't think is helpful. And yet it exists. And of course, the reasons you can imagine that exists are because there's financial incentives to keep it going. That's my editorial. Dr. Gutra may um, has somewhat different ideas, but fairly generally agrees. So I think you'll find an interesting discussion. Uh, we're going to get into the weeds a little bit, but I think you know, you'll find that generally we'll explain a lot of times why your physician friends might be upset and why they might be um, having problems with burnout and why you've seen people in the last two years, we've seen almost 25% people have left medicine. Now, those aren't just physicians and nurses, but these are professionals and people who are the ancillary staff. And you got to ask yourself why they've left medicine. I mean, that's an amazing amount of turnover in the United States. And so there obviously won't be one cause or one reason that people leave. There are multiple reasons. But this is just one of many. And this is one that, you know, could be cleaned up. And so I think that's something we should really look at and recognize when our colleagues have problems or complaints and maybe there's a way to change these things. And so that's hopefully as an advocacy, that's what this show is about to explain to those who are in the business why it's not working the way they want it to, and maybe some people who found solutions. And then for those who are not in the business, kind of what's going on and why, you know, why my family members or why my friends having trouble. So that's what our goal is with the show. I'd like to remind you to go to theparadox.com slash 157. There you can find links to Dr. Gudra's study, his article in Medscape, and also his 
other side hobby where he helps people with board questions, both for the general medicine, completing your medical school, and then also for the specialty boards and anesthesia. But without further ado, Dr. Gudra and the testing industrial complex strikes again. Enjoy. Well, hi, I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Basavana Gudra. He's an anesthesiologist at Penn Medicine in Philadelphia. And today we're going to talk about recertification. And so we talked in the past about board certification and and recertification. And today we're going to talk about the certification process in addition to other things that go on with the certification universe, I guess, when it comes to medicine. So Dr. Gujar, thanks so much for joining the Paradox. You're welcome. Well, let's get into your article because I found it very interesting. It's something we don't, I haven't seen a whole lot of. We've, Like I said, we've talked about the recertification process and just, I guess, as a brief primer for those of you who may not remember what we've talked about in the past, there is initial certification, so you finish your residency training, whatever the specialty is, and there is some sort of certification process by the boards, and there are 20 specialty boards, part of the American Board of Medical Specialties, ABMS, and they're all, every specialty has their own board. So I'm anesthesia, and so I have the ABA. My wife's a pediatrician. She has the ABP, the American Board of Pediatrics, and they have uh, different components. So they have a, they almost, I think they all have a written component where they have a written test you take. And then they have other things. And so they might have like an oral boards, uh, which we had an anesthesia, or they'll have um, case reports. And so you'll have to go over cases uh, that you've done if you're like a surgeon. And then they'll review those. And they'll talk, ask you questions like, why would you do this? What if this had happened? Would you have done things differently? Those sorts of things. And then mm -hmm. once you get that, once you pass those components, then you are certified in your specialty. So you're, you're board certified, whatever, anesthesiologist, pediatrician, et cetera. And then now we have this recertification process where every five to 10 years you do new components and do things to actually maintain your certification because what used to be a lifetime certification process became a time limited. So it would, it would expire and you had to keep doing this current testing. But we're going to talk about the certification process because um, it is, again, uh, not surprisingly, there are things being added to this. And so um, Dr. Gudra is an anesthesiologist and so he conducted a study but for the anesthesia boards, because they added a component. Can you briefly describe what the component was they added and what made you, I guess, look into um, the effectiveness or utility of this new testing program? Yeah, uh, thank you for asking the question. Yeah, what they introduced is something called objective structured clinical examination. And uh, ABA is the only board out of 24 uh, member boards of the ABMS to introduce this component. Uh, in 2018, and uh, they did some uh, you know, background research into that, but the research was uh, mostly uh, into the feasibility of uh, holding this exam because it's a big number, uh, and I'm sure you recall that in the past, uh, I'm sure when you took the exam, it, it used to be in a hotel, the yeah. uh, short, I mean, SOE exams, and <laughs> which is not the best place to hold these exams, but so be it. And then they moved to their own headquarters. And they probably found, you know, there's enough space and, you know, logistics to conduct this exam. Uh, and that's what they initially looked at, which for me kind of surprising in this day and age, one would, uh, one hopes that there'll be, you know, some kind of you know, pilot study or, some kind of uh, way of doing things to see whether it, to do a couple of things. Uh, 
One, this is obviously, you know, like your uh, USMLE clinical skin component, which probably, you know, has been in a, in a in 2020, they completely stopped it. And this was something similar. And one would hope that in this day and age, they will do some kind of pilot project, not just to see whether this uh, can be just you know, conducted in a large scale, but whether it adds value. That's one thing. And also, and, you know, America is a, you know, is a big country, about 1,500 to 1,600 residents you know, appear for this exam every year. And you have people coming from you know, all kinds of uh, different parts of the world, you know, different accents, different nationalities that look differently. And they must or they should have also looked into possible bias in this and this kind of exam, because the bias has been questioned, was questioned uh, as far as USMLE clinical skin component, and finally they, you know, they did get rid of it, because there is enough evidence to show that. Uh, I mean, when I contacted the ABA uh, and asked them about how they're addressing potential bias. Their answer was, oh, well, everybody gets, uh, you know, unconscious by strength, <laughs> But there is enough data to show that the EBT at best is uh, ineffective, uh, at worst is reinforces the bias. Everybody knows. And especially, you know, in this climate of hyperpolarization, you know, anything is, <laughs> anything is looked through the prism of, uh, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, in a bias. Uh, so yeah, I, I was I was curious. I mean, I, I found it a bit odd. They decided to introduce a component that had a you know, potential bias with unproven value uh, into already overburdened exam because don't forget, not that long ago, they introduced basic exam, which wasn't there before. Uh, to make it worse, the basic exam was kind of essential to get to, I think, year three or something. If somebody doesn't pass the basic exam in the first two years, they're basically, you know, uh, out of their anesthesia residency. And I certainly know at least one person who, uh, you know, who was asked to leave the specialty and, you know, didn't go very well. I don't want to go into the details of it afterwards. And I mean, looking at multiple factors and no other uh, uh, ABMS member board had it. Maybe a a ABA wanted to set an example, you know, as to how we can do differently. Or uh, maybe they wanted to prove that we are better than, you know, anesthesiology assistants and, uh, you know, CRNAs, that we do something extra. But it doesn't matter what they do. I always thought in this, not just now, even in the past, they must have you know, made sure one, this exam is unbiased, and second, it adds value. Uh, and in order to achieve these two goals, they should probably have, you know, like we can do the videos so easily, and they already have the video. Why don't they just sit with the candidate and go through the performance as well? Because at the end of the day, AB is there to make sure the patients do better. It's all about patient care. That's that's how they get there. I guess non-profit exemption. I mean, non-profit doctors. So that wasn't there. And yeah, with this background, I thought, you know, let me just figure out what the residents think about this component. So that yeah. that, that that was the whole idea. Uh, I mean, there were other issues. 
Some of them are kind of mired in our department uh, politics. Uh, I don't want to go into the details. Yeah, no, that's okay. So I guess uh, maybe specifically, so it is very, um, it's, <laughs> the name is very enigmatic, right? Objective Structured Clinical Examination. What exactly does that mean? So right now, if I go in, if before, when I was me, I went, I did a written exam where you test in basic knowledge of, you know, all kinds of anesthesia, whether it's, you know, the vapor pressure, desflurane, or, you know, how a semi-closed system, circle system works, or whatever like that. And then you have the oral system where they give you a bunch of scenarios. Someone, you sit in a room, someone gives you, asks you a question about some case, and then whatever you do is wrong, and the patient just keeps circling the drain and getting sicker and sicker, and you have to try and, you know, find some way of bringing him back, right? Um, so what is this exam? I mean, what... What exactly were they doing? It supposedly has seven components, and uh, two of the components are truly objective. I mean, I had to say that. One is identifying some videos uh, uh, and images of transcusophageal echocardiogram, which itself is debatable. Uh, the reason being that, you know, other than cardiac anesthesiologist, who actually uses it? Yeah, that's true. And even if you end up in memorizing some of these videos, and you know, nowadays you can get pretty much everything on YouTube. Even if you spend time, some time, you know, looking at these, do the exam, you forget about it unless you use it, right? Sure. You use it or lose it. That's that's typically, you know, at one point I was probably one of the best uh, regional anesthesiologists before the ultrasound days, and most of the time I didn't even use a nerve stimulator. The landmark, for example, of superclavicular block, which was my favorite, was, you know, where the external jugular vein crosses your, you know, clavicle, introduce the needle down there, hit the first trip, and just find your paresthesia and inject. You know, the famous statement uh, from, I think, Dr. Ramanathan from UPIT, uh, who is no more, was that if your, if your, if your needle can't find the nerve, let the drug find it. So, big volumes. <laughs> Right. Yeah, right. Sure. Uh, and that, that's what we did. And it was beautiful. You know, BS Block is another one which was, I was very fond of. Nowadays, probably most residents haven't even seen one no. because of the fear. But it was beautiful. So, but after I stopped doing them, I lost, you know, I don't think I can do even one. So yeah, that's sure. the way these things are. So, although, you know, you, there has some value to it, but for a candidate who has worked for, you know, years, uh, I mean, had two years of residency, obviously, uh, and has, you know, worked for his uh, uh, written component of the course and has done his, uh, you know, uh, structured oral exam. And for that candidate to say fail because he missed one or two transesophageal echo videos and then he, ended, he ends up in waiting for one more year uh, how fair is it and the same thing with the regional anesthesia regional you can still argue that most anesthesiologists should know about regional anesthesia so and ultrasound has become you know more or less standard now i can probably that's that's what one and the problem is the other four very subjective components you know being uh, you know, labeled as objective components. Uh, one of them is, uh, you know, they're all based on standardized actors taking consent 
affect patient and then you know uh, talking to your colleague you know a surgeon might cancel a case and then you're the kind of you know no, sorry a, a patient is probably not suitable for anesthesia and then you have to beg plead and make a case with the surgeon you know, why the case should be cancelled i mean I, I honestly find these things doesn't really add any value you know whether that or you know uh, many, many of these things so-called so subjective i mean objective but very subjective so and many times i've spoken to few candidates and many times they don't know when they fail why they fail and i can see why because one you know these are standardized actors we are used to speaking to the real patients not to the standardized yeah. actors so, so that makes it hard and then you, you have to really act uh, whereas in real life you know we are all yeah. we all have the qualities and there are so many things that go in it. I mean, you and I both know. So one look at the patient, I figure out, you know, how much I'm going to tell him, how I'm going to tell him, what I'm going to tell him. You know, if somebody's extremely anxious, probably they want to know as little as possible. You know, there's some, some patients who tell me that, doctor, you know your job, just do it. I don't want to know anything. <laughs> so everything has, everything has to be, you know, really tailor-made for individual patients. And obviously, in the stress of the exam, the residents are going to, you know, they also become a standardized anesthesiologist instead of a, you know, a regular anesthesiologist. Right. Uh, that doesn't help. And as a result, I thought, you know, I, I don't think AB has done enough homework you know, to do this. And let me figure out what the, what the residents think about it. And that way, maybe, you know, ABA might, you know, change their mind. Or who knows? Just because if this pandemic goes on for in a couple more years, they might just get it. Yeah. So it, that it sounds like the the OSCE the the goal of it was of course having some like you mentioned some sort of um, advanced testing, like you say, with looking at images of, of ultrasound of you know transesophageal echoes or whatever. But but it's more like here's what the practical day to day applications of you know interacting with with colleagues. You have to cancel cases. You have to do uncomfortable things like tell a patient they're going to go under an anesthesia. You're going to put them into a medically induced coma and then bring them back, right? I mean, how do you do these things? And uh, I, I feel like it—it it is like you said. It is you're—they're forcing you to act and not be yourself, right? Because you—you can't be yourself. You can't read the patient and know what they would want. Because there are absolutely patients who want to know everything and patients who want to know nothing. Like, and I—I'll—I'll I'll start talking to people and I can just tell right away. I'm like. Mm -hmm. And I said, I totally understand. I'm just going to give you a real brief version. You don't get on the airplane and ask the pilot to fly at 30,000 feet. You just want to get on the plane and get to Los Angeles. You don't care how you get there. You just want to get there safely. And I understand that. And I'll just tell you, you know, why you might have a sore throat or something like that. Um, and so, you know, one of the – what you sort of alluded to earlier is you said, you know, the, there are, of course, biases. Because some people just aren't good in acting situations, right? It's all artificial. Like mm -hmm. working on a simulator is kind of artificial too, right? It's not a real patient. It's a piece of plastic in front of you. But also, um, you know, you have to, like you said, there's a testing location. You have to get there. If you're in Los Angeles or if you're in Hawaii or Alaska, you've got to fly all the way to wherever it is, spend a lot of money. And for a test that is, you know, I mean, I, we could all argue with a written test that's fairly objective, where they're usually right and wrong answers. Mm -hmm. It's pretty hard to know what those, uh, what's right and wrong in a test like this, right? Exactly, especially if the ABA is not willing to give feedback. 
you know how it, how the ABA works, right? Uh, I'm sure you know that if, if you don't pass an exam, for example, you have to pay some $200, $250 for rescoring. It is not, they get an independent, another panel of examiner to look at the video. They just add up the numbers. <laughs> really? I mean, okay, you know, ABA is a rich organization now. I mean, if you look at the, yes. I, 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 I have it on the, you know, on my paper. Uh, I think 2018, they made $19 million or something. That, that's big. And one of their argument is, uh, yeah, after, after I published this study, uh, one of the Medscape reporter wanted to cover this story. And uh, I spoke to them and then the reporter contacted the ABA secretary, then secretary, I'm not going to take the name. And uh, he, and then the, the Medscape never published the story. So I was wondering what happened. A week passed, two weeks passed, and nothing happened. And I contacted them again. I said, oh, oh, sorry, we contacted the secretary and this is the response he sent. And I was kind of surprised with all the falsehood they made. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe the false statement. I'm not going to the details again. I uh, know. Uh, factual errors. And they're not kind of oversight errors. I mean, for me, they look deliberate. Maybe the ABA secretary you know, had a job to safeguard the interest of the ABA. No, I don't, uh, I don't uh, have any problems with that. But then at the same time, you expect somebody at that position to be you know, ethical uh, and professional the way, you know, which is all ASCII is about in the way they responded. And then I, I, I mean, I was obviously upset and then I, but the ABA didn't expect me to get this response because you know, it was sent to them and they, they never thought I'm going to get a hand on to this. And when I got the hand on to this, I did write back to the APA and you know, uh, the managing director. And uh, she initially tried to defend uh, and one of the defense was, well, I mean, some of the mistakes were pretty, you know, pretty elementary. Uh, one of them was, well, you only sent the uh, emails to quarter of the residents. No, I had actually sent about three quarters. And then they said, no, your response is only 5%. No, my response was 17.2%. <laughs> For any online study nowadays, 17.2% is a pretty good response. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Especially if, it, if it's coming from across the country. I mean, I had 42 provinces, you know, including uh, states and to uh, Washington and Puerto Rico. That, that was that was good response. But uh, for the ABA to you know get to that kind of uh, silliness, I would say, I found it surprising. And and I I did tell them, uh, well, you know, I find it surprising that maybe you know in your uh, uh, calculation, the number of residents is three times what it is. I'm not aware of because that's not what I found when I looked at the data. They said, no, I mean, we were in a hurry, you know, uh, <laughs> as a result, we, you know, that mistake has happened. Uh, and, there's, and then I wrote back and I said, come on, a elementary school student can do, you know, uh, 720 divided by 4,200, you know, <laughs> as a percentage. Uh, it doesn't require you know, much mathematical knowledge. And I don't know how much time it was given. This was important thing I told him. I don't know how much time you were given, but 
in an exam, whether it is ASCII or oral boards, a candidate gets few seconds to formulate a plan and present the plan. If they make a mistake, you can go back. Right. They probably know very well the right answer, but given the situation, the time, you know, the stress at the exam, candidates do make, do make mistakes, but you don't give them a chance. And here you're saying that, you know, because you were in a hurry, you made such silly mistake. Anyway, they, they sent an apology to me afterwards, I mean, that's, that's, that, which is a big deal, I guess, for the ABA president to apologize. I guess we should probably just point out too that uh, you know this this study that you mentioned it'll be linked to on the show notes page at theparadox.com/157. We'll also have a link to the article. Is it time to rethink the OSCE? But specifically about your study, we kind of alluded to, it, but we haven't mentioned it, is is that you you surveyed residents and also program directors, and then you got the very high response rate of seventeen percent. If anyone knows who does an online survey, I mean a, anything over upwards over at 5% is actually pretty impressive. And so uh -huh. over 10% is really remarkable. So to get that high a response rate suggests either that they were very bored and most residents uh, usually aren't that bored or that they're very upset <laughs> that they have, yeah, they have strong feelings that. about it, right? And so that's where you get, you get responses like that. And so I guess just um, clearly the residents were not happy about this. And one could say, well, residents never want extra testing. They never want to do extra work. I mean, who does? No one wants to do more stuff, pay more money to do another test, right? But I think, you know, A, you found that they thought there was no value to this, but also that you did test program directors and their response rate was not dis that dissimilar from residents, right? The, the program director study actually came from the ABA. <laughs> okay. And uh, yeah, they published it in Journal of Clinical Anesthesia. But, uh, uh, you know, not surprisingly in their conclusions, uh, in abstract, they didn't even mention, mention the findings. They highlighted the fact that because of the OSCE, there were curriculum changes. They downplayed the other two components, which I highlighted. <laughs> well, you know, there's politics everywhere, but there shouldn't be politics here. And you're right, the program directors felt the same thing, you know, it doesn't any, add any value. And now what is the data to show that these certifications mean anything? I mean, I just uh, uh, replied to somebody there. ABA has been in existence for over 80 years, almost 83 years, right? In 1938, they started. It started as in a, a voluntary in a kind of in a, having a coffee breakfast kind of uh, thing, which became certification. And then it slowly evolved into what it is now. So I guess we have a test right now that we've decided is probably not adding my value. It's 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 now gone from two components to now three components now to finish your certification. Yeah. Anyone who's gone, who is in practice, is going through the recertification process, the amount, the components that continue to get added, uh, which I think most people argue don't add a whole lot of value to your clinical practice, except send more money to the American Board of Anesthesiology or to the American Society of Anesthesiology because you're paying for CME components that are specifically, you know, certain criteria that actually qualify for your recertification process. And so, um, you know, it it wouldn't take much of a cynic to say, well, you know, most of the stuff they're doing, we've we can't really determine that there's any value to it, but except that it provides a financial value benefit to the American Board of Anesthesiology, that they they can charge really whatever they want because it's not like you're gonna go through your residency and say, well, I'm not gonna pay this last little bit, you know, that they added in. Um, and so, I mean, what do you what do you say to that? I mean, I think I don't think that's uh, a totally unreasonable sort of viewpoint to say they're adding these things that 
you know, to your point, they never really showed that it had any value to begin with, or they've never had launched to studies, right? Showing that people are better. Or yeah, but cancel cases uh, better. Finish what, I, uh, what I started earlier on. Uh, yeah, the ABA has been in existence for you know eighty years. That that is sufficient time for them to do some study. <laughs> yeah, and they, and that one study did come out of Penn many years ago in two thousand two. Uh, Dr. Longnecker, who was the chair of the department, was a senior author. But you know that's uh, you know, they compared the thirty-day mortality among the anesthesiologists who were board certified versus non-board certified. And uh, you know, first of all, you're looking at thirty-day mortality. I mean, unless you can demonstrate a direct link that uh, you know something which is caused by the anesthesiologist. Because of lack of knowledge or applying that knowledge, which in turn ended up in morbidity mortality, you cannot really say. And the authors themselves said that non-board certified anesthesiologists worked in less desirable hospitals, which is right. probably the biggest factor which might expect today in a mortality. So that's one thing. And as a result, they moved away from you know trying to show that the and don't forget, ABA has to show that it's it adds value. The reason being. If you go on the ABA website, one of the missions of the ABA, or I guess the reason they get their you know, non-profit uh, status, is their mission is to improve the patient's life, patient care, patient outcome. So if that is a primary goal, don't you think in these 82 years they could have come up with something better way of showing it with the data? So as a result, what they did in the last about seven, eight years, they tried to, you know, show again that's you know very flawed study to show that disciplinary proceedings against anesthesiologists by the medical boards are less in somebody who did the oral exam or who passed the oral exam as some you know compared to somebody who didn't pass the oral exam. But then only one third of these were related to your oral exam. You know, pass or not. The remaining two thirds were related to things like you know, drug abuse, alcohol, fraud. And moreover, that's not the reason you do ABA certification to reduce your risk of you know, licensing. And pretty much, you know, any American ABMS board which has tried to show the value of their you know, board certification has gone in this direction. Maybe it's relatively easy to do because it's easy to get the data. But then we're not interested in that because we know that, you know, that the licensing doesn't depend on that. Right. What we learn doesn't really, you know, board certified anesthesiologists, I know people who got into, you know, fraud, drugs, alcohol, and lost their license. So that shouldn't be the way, you know, they do things. I understand it is hard, uh, you know, to demonstrate something like that, but it's not impossible. So, they I mean, and and another thing they must answer, they must address is the bias, which the psychiatry did address in a way way back in 2016. They started working on on it from 2008, and if the ABA argues the purpose of, you know, objective structural clinical examination, and even oral exam for that matter is to test somebody's you know communication and professionalism skills which speciality 
needs it more than any other specialty. Psychiatry, you agree with me? Yeah, sure. Psychiatrists need it yeah. <laughs> more than anybody else. And they got rid of it. They got rid of it because they found out, you know, the language, cultural barriers affect the result of the exam. And at, le- at, the, at the minimum, what I suggest is, you know, I'm not saying that they should, you know, abandon, uh, you know, structure oral exam has definitely value. And who knows, ASCII might have value, but they should demonstrate it. But at the minimum, they should have the video evidence at least presented to the candidate so that he can learn from his mistakes at the minimum. They're not doing that. And that's not difficult to do nowadays. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, you could one could argue that part of the residency process is not actually, it is actually obviously to gain skills, it's to gain knowledge and to, you know, understand deeper the your specialty and the ins and outs of it. Just clearly that's the case. But there's more to it than that, right? And the things that there are those, um, you know, the sort of social skills that you learn, the ability to communicate with your colleagues, talking to the other other services, explaining why you should or shouldn't do something. Um, you know, when you have the ophthalmologist who tells you, hey, the patient's moving during a cataract, can you give him some muscle relaxants? How do you, you know, <laughs> not tell them that you can't paralyze someone if they're breathing on their own, right? Like, you know, those sorts of things, I mean, make great stories. But, um, but to like, you know, work with your colleagues, and, uh, you know, it seems to me that if you feel like you have, if you're a residency program and you are credentialed, whatever we decide the credentialing process, those things should sort of be assumed, right? And that to try and objectively tr- determine those through some other s- tests is probably kind of, um, it's probably a fool's, you know, fool's errand to try and actually find those things, right? Because um, if we either say, you know, you went, to, you went to Harvard, you went to, you know, UPenn, University of Iowa, I did, our assumption is that you're going to be a reasonable person and that those programs will have removed you or taught you or said, you know, this just is the wrong job for you or something like that. I, and it seems like this sort of program, uh, this testing regime is not really going to do anything besides either reaffirm what we already know that the program's doing what it's supposed to do or, uh, you know, that you have some sort of problem just for cultural reasons. Like you said, maybe you just, the person's like, this guy seems weird or whatever, uh, it, that it just punishes people for unduly. And I, mm-hmm. and just is, and it is, and, and if you say, well, everybody passes, which maybe some people would say most people do, well, then what's the point of doing it at all if everyone's passing, right? Because then now, now you're just collecting it. You're just send, having me send you a check, right? I mean, that's really all, that's all you're doing. That's exactly I, what happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, see, you're right. I mean, if somebody has gone through this rigorous, you know, four years of residency process, you know, and, you know, they've been, you know, so, I mean, the program director certifies them, you know, you know they get, they get through the program. They should be good enough to do all these basic things. They know how to communicate with the patient. And if you want to do that, you know, I, I don't know, Australia used to do that. Maybe it's, but again, you know, the logistics are, will be, will be tough is to maybe get an examiner and ask him to observe the actual anesthesia that's being done, both from the preoperative in a point, intra and post-op. Because that way you can see the real performance of the candidate, the real patient, which is hard to do, but you know, at least it is a, a better way of doing it. But I, I, have, you know, I have great reservations with standardized actors. Yeah, right. 
Well, and I think, you know, if you want to just look at a regular, let's say, undergraduate education, somebody gets their degree in biology, they don't have further testing and things they do afterwards. You have your degree in biology, and then you go, you either maybe you've done an internship. There are other sort of things that are, that are used to determine whether you're a good candidate or someone who's good in the field. Uh, and, I mean, I guess in some ways you say, well, the only experiences and life experience is going to sort of weed people out who are good people uh, in that field or not. And, uh, you know, I can add other tests ahead of time, but the only thing, once my rubber meets the road, is really where you find out this person is capable, can it, right? That, that's why when we have grads, they come and they interview with us because we assume that they know the basic, you know, knowledge and whatever, but we talk to, we get letters of recommendation written by faculty about the person. Maybe we know someone in this faculty who knows this person and can tell us if they are good or bad, um, if they've got problems. I mean, that's how you, I mean, that's just the real world, and so I don't, I guess it seems like the um, the ABA is sort of like trying to do a uh, interview process when, in fact, all they really should be focusing on is whether someone is safe or unsafe, right? I think you know if someone is like totally lacking knowledge or they're someone who can safely do the job. Exactly. Not, not whether they're a great guy. You want to have a beer with them or something, but it should be, it should be just, yeah. are you someone who can is capable of doing the job? Because maybe your person, that person, doesn't fit in with my group. But they may fit in with another group, just like I mm -hmm. may fit in with this examination or examiner, and maybe I don't sometimes. But it doesn't mean mm -hmm. I'm the wrong person sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, Esquire peg in Esquire hole. <laughs> so uh, like one of the things we talked about a lot in the show too is um, we have these quasi um, governmental agencies, and so the American Board of Anesthesiology is one of these these such groups, and the ABMS would be an example. Any of the specialty boards would be this where they are private, so you can't, there's no like legislation you can pass to change the rules. Uh, but we're sort of beholden to them as specialists. Like we have really no power. And, and, and mm -hmm. it's not like you can go to the, you know, the North American Board of Anesthesiology. There's only the ABA. There's no other place to get certified, which makes the studies, to what your point was, that very few people who are not board certified who can find jobs anywhere. Because if you can, it's like you said, you're at a kind of a, a low class hospital or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so it's the counterfactual to prove like these guys aren't dangerous. Well, or because everybody pretty much is board certified who's working in anesthesia. So you can't really like even have a, any sort of reasonable study with, you know, matching cohorts of, you know, people who have training or whatever. And so with the ABA, uh, I guess to your point, they had this test, they had no pilot study. They just said, Hey, we're going to do this. We'll see how it goes. And then, I don't know, even if they got feedback, how do you know that it, that they care what your feedback is? I mean, what sort of power do physicians have, in this case anesthesiologists, but it could be any specialty board, right? They could just launch something. What power do we have to say that this is not a good idea? Because it seems to me that there's nothing we can do because they can they control the certification process whether we can work or not. Yeah, that's a good question. That, that, that's a hard one, right? I mean, that's what they take advantage of. You know, it, it, it is a voluntary mandatory exam. <laughs> like the IRS, right? You have you can send us all send us your taxes. You don't have to, but if you don't, we'll, you'll go to jail. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, they should first realize themselves. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, come on, they're gone through the same process you know, as you and me. You know, the board directors are they're all anesthesiologists. They know what they're doing, and in fact. You know, I was speaking to one of the director, and again, I'm not going to tell the names. And before they you know, started this process of asking, 
uh, one of the directors, in fact, raised the question, how many of you guys among the directors, that is uh, 10, 12 of them, are capable of you know, passing these uh, fancy citizen echo or ultrasound? Not many, yeah. unless they were doing cardiac anesthesia. Uh, well, you can argue, you know, once you pass the exam, you don't have to know about it. But then, you know, if, if you're a director of a board trying to establish some, some new norm and bring in something new, I think it's reasonable to expect that they should know it themselves. At least, I mean, you know, that's, that's my opinion. But your question is, how can you change it? Well, I mean, I hope I made some beginning, at least you know, I, I made people to think. Uh, and you know, if more and more people think, and I have another IRB approved study looking at you know, other aspects of the ABA functioning, and uh, probably that study, you know, uh, the questionnaire survey will be going up in the next six months or so. So that, I mean, the, the very fact, you know, if, if that's the case, if, if what you're saying is, is true, ABA should have just ignored my survey altogether, right? Sure. There was no need for them to lie to the Medscape, criticizing my study. If I'm nobody, if they think, you know, who cares, you know, right. this guy is not, you know, if, if, if he's just barking at us, you know, we're a huge elephant, who cares? If that's the case, they could have told the Medscape total, you know what, we don't respond to those kind of studies. So obviously they care. Yeah. Obviously they care what the residents, you know, think. USMLE, you know, finally they had to, I mean, the pandemic came as well, but they did, you know, got rid of their exam, which was not serving any purpose, you know, which was biased, which was questioned for many years, both by an American graduates and foreign American graduates, and they finally got rid of it. So if, if, if you know, if residents and doctors, you know, keep, keep putting pressure, uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm sure, but I mean, there are other legal ways of doing it, uh, you know, represent, sending representation to the you know, state legislatures and things like that. I won't do that way. But who has time and effort? And yeah. the problem is, most of the people, once they get certified, they don't care to look into that. Right? Yeah, why? Well, you've you've gone through which it, is, like, whatever. Which is, yeah. which is kind of incorrect because. See, maybe because I'm in academic center and I have unique interest in looking at the bias. So this is not the first time I, I, I looked at a, you know, a study involving bias. There's a paper I published in 2018. I mean, I have about 80 Medline Index publications, but my main focus of research is endoscopy anesthesia. That's where I did most of the you know, sedation-related studies. And my papers, including in the meta-analysis, retrospective, prospective studies, they used to go into something like two to three impact factor GI journals. Some of them have been extensively cited. But whenever I sent to, you know, anesthesia analysis yeah, or seminal journal, they got rejected. And I was wondering, you know, why? I mean, obviously they want, you know, something like this to be widely read. They want citations, you know, to improve the impact factor. Why they're rejecting it? Then I looked at the editorial board and look at their publication. I said, huh. So if you're an editorial board member, you have a better chance of getting published in the same journal. <laughs> I mean, it's supposed to be blind dead, but then I started looking at the uh, data. I looked at the uh, publications of first five editorial board members, 
in the top five highest impact factor anesthesiology and gastroenterology journals. I mean, one expects, even if you are in the ANA editorial board, would you, like, would you not like to get it published in anesthesiology because highest impact factor, higher impact factor? If you are, same thing with, you know, Journal of Clinical Anesthesia was even lower and, you know, anesthesia, the, the, the written, written was lower. So anybody probably likes to aim at a higher one. But I found results not totally surprising. Uh, the p-value for editorial board member publishing in anesthesia and anesthesia, their own journal was something like ridiculous 0.01 or something. <laughs> so I, I found that if you're an editorial board member, you have a pretty high chance of getting into the same journal. And strangely, majority of the OSCE related papers, there are quite a few of them, they're all published in AN. Interesting. And I asked the ANA editor, I mean, you know, it doesn't make sense why everything is coming to your journal. Don't they find anesthesiology more interesting? I mean, that's higher impact. <laughs> so that's one thing I looked at. Uh, and the second thing I again looked at uh, in 2020 was, you know, how this hype that most of the doctors who are dying because of COVID are anesthesiology, intensive care doctors, you know, emergency room doctors. And, but then when I started looking at the data, I really didn't see it. Then I, you know, studied the Medscape data and then surprisingly, I found the group which died most were family doctors, which is oh. surprising. Yeah. Not anesthesiology. In fact, the death rates among anesthesiologists was same as psychiatrists, <laughs> <laughs> which is very surprising. In fact, Penn used the data to formulate the plan as to who gets vaccination first. So it, 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 I, I've done this kind of, you know, this is not the first time I looked at the bias. Yeah. So that's what, uh, one of the reasons I started looking at, at this, but how can you change it? I, I think I think people have to be on the, on the thing, not just one person, you know, more than one person has to do it. And that's what I'm hoping as I go along, probably get more people involved and in, you know, giving the interview with you know, somebody like you on your, Podcast is probably going to help to spread the message. You probably saw my anesthesiology news article and proximity. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope I can, you know, keep pushing it forward. Yeah, well, until, it's a, it, yeah, until at least they make it, uh, at least they start providing the video evidence to the candidates. At least yeah. they should do it. There's no reason why they shouldn't. Sure. Well, you know, uh, I suppose you could argue they just need to maintain the, the uh, they are private and they probably have to maintain the image that they actually care. Uh, you know, that's why they do care about their image, right, in the public. And they've, and I'm certainly, they've seen what's happened in the American Board of Internal Medicine, which has had a public relations disaster. I mean, they've, I guess I'd, I'd almost say they're criminal operation in some ways. They were pretty close and a lot of what was, yeah. was disclosed about AVIM and maybe it's not technically criminal, but it was uh, certainly not at very ethical in a lot of what they did, and lots of physicians were yeah. rightly upset about it, but not a whole lot's been done. I mean, you know, the leadership's still there at ABIM, and we are very much, uh, you know, it's golden hand handcuffs, right? We just can't really uh -huh. shake these organizations, and so, but to your point also earlier that the psychiatry board dropped one of their examinations, and so it's entirely possible that they could, they could radically change or drop one of them. Maybe they dropped 
you know, the oral boards and have uh, the OSCE and Yeah, there's no accountability, I agree. Uh, yeah. In fact, I, I asked the ABA, you know, do you have anything called an you know, person? They said, no. Are you accountable to ABMS? No. <laughs> ABA is not accountable to ABMS. Yet they, yet they have a component to add on because, well, because the ABMS told us we had to. Because <laughs> we, we decided we have to add this, you know, um, you know, level five components. I can't remember the, the part five or something like that for MOC for main certification because that's what everyone else is doing. But then I'll see other my wife's board say, "Well, we're doing this because this is what the anesthesiologists are like." Oh, great! We're like a bad example for people to add more, uh, you know, more components on. And you know, we look at the the before even COVID, we looked at high burnout rates. We had high suicide rates, mm -hmm. the highest of, of any profession within medicine. I mean, outside of dentistry or something, but actually within the medical profession, we're the highest. And it's, and it, I mean, it's not just because of certification process, but certainly doesn't help. And especially when you're doing things that are, I mean, as you said, a little bit subjective, right? Like, are you communicating well with that person? Well, I thought I convinced that person, but he's acting. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, he was, maybe he didn't think I did a good job. I don't know. And so um, it... It makes it it's frustrating for me because I feel like a lot of times there's no recourse for you. There's no other alternative, you know, board you can go to. There's no sort of rep, there's not even a representative that you can go talk to for the ABA, right? I mean, the American yeah. Society of Anesthesiology, well, you technically have reps and they go and they do, you know, they have or go to AMA. They're people who are representing you in your district. But there's nothing like that in ABA. It's just a sort of board of I think they're almost all academics almost always. Who are mm -hmm. pulling down a lot of a lot of money? I mean, to do whatever it is they do. I mean, the the at least the only good thing I could say about the ABA is that they're not making the same salaries as the ABIM or the ABP, where those guys are pulling down seven figures, and you know, which is two to three times what their colleagues are doing on the ground, right? Who mm -hmm. they're apparently credentialing. So, um, well, I want. I, I think you were right at the end of the day. It, they they do care for the image. Yeah, it's all I mean, about image, right? And if more and more people start questioning that, if more and more people start questioning the value of the exam and you know whether it makes any different difference in patient care, then they have to care. Yeah, I, I mean, you think so? I mean, there are their 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 um their authority, I guess, comes from the image from hospitals and credentialing organizations. Like, oh, well, if they say it's important, then it must be important, whatever. And if we if there are a bunch of people questioning that, they're they, these hospitals might say, eh, maybe it's not important or something. Mm -hmm. So I guess that would be our, our only recourse is to, you know, put as much data as we can, which is what you've done, expose the problems and the p potential pro uh, biases that are involved with this system, and then question it, I guess, and 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 hopefully keep people engaged, which, you know, everyone's busy and doing other things. And <laughs> to your point, too, that yeah. once you're done with your residency, you're like, I don't want to, I'm done with that board. I'm done. I don't want to think about it again. But I didn't even know, I mean, not in academics, I'm, sort of um, peripherally involved with academics, but I didn't even know about this test existing. I, so uh, just, you know, so it just shows you how disengaged you become after you leave yeah, the, the training part. I mean, that's really sort of the part of it. So you actually also, um, in kind of shift of topics, but you uh, run iatroboards.com. Mm -hmm. And so that is a, a, and this is why I know you're plugged into sort of the testing thing and credentialing, which helps people with uh, USMLE uh, questioning and, and anesthesia boards. Can you briefly say what that was and what made you start this uh, that that project? Well, that has been something I've been thinking for a long, long time, for almost 20, 25 years. And you know, I've, I've been thinking about these questions and I've been kind of you know, writing them and collecting them. And 
I, I, you know, I, I somehow decided to you know, put it across. It didn't come as any specific reason or specific purpose. It's something you can say, my lifelong ambition to have something like that. <laughs> to help people, <laughs> nothing more than to that. help people pass boards, right? Is basically what those those things are. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Passports, yeah, yeah. But then it, there are so many of them, right? I mean, you, you can probably block them. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about doing my own, but I thought I got other things going on, so I want to. It, it, it's a lot of hard work, though. <laughs> yeah. I've got work. this. This podcast is plenty for me, so. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm planning to put all of them on YouTube as videos in a one one five minutes or ten minutes video for each question. Uh, let us see, because that's that's a lot of work. Perfect. It could be like the Gudra Academy, sort of just like the Khan Academy. It'd be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just more of a hobby, anything like you do. Well, Dr. Gudra, I want to thank you so much for being on the, the Paradox and for introducing us to your study and what you've found about with the OSCME or OSCE. And of course, again, those will all be linked to the paradox.com slash 157. Dr. Gudra, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Lassen. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.